Again and again were the breaches attacked with redoubled fury, and again and again defended with equal pertinacity and stern resolution, seconded by every resource which science could adopt or ingenuity suggest. Bags and barrels of gunpowder with short fuses were rolled down, which, bursting at the bottom or along the face of the breaches, destroyed all who advanced. Thousands of live shells, hand grenades, fireballs, and every species of destructive combustible were thrown down the breaches and over the walls into the ditches, which, lighting and exploding at the same time, rivalled the lightning and thunder of heaven. This, at intervals, was succeeded by an impenetrable darkness as of the infernal regions. Gallant foes, laughing at death, met, fought, bled, and rolled upon earth and from the very earth destruction burst, for the exploding mines cast up friend and foe together, who in burning torture clashed and shrieked in the air. The roaring cannons, the bursting of shells, the rattle of musketry, the awful explosion of mines and flaring sickly blaze of fireballs seemed not of human invention, but rather as if all the elements of nature had greedily combined in the general havoc, and heaven, earth and hell, had united for the destruction alike of devoted Badahoff and its furious assailants. It reads like a scene from the Battle of Verdun or Stalingrad, doesn't it? But it isn't. It's from the Third Siege of Badahoff. The night of the 6th of April 1812 saw a British force storm the city and eventually capture it from the French. But it was a bloodbath. There were nearly 5,000 British casualties and some of the assaulting units lost 40% of their combat strength. We'll revisit this bloody brutal night of combat in a future episode, but I thought it was a good punchy way to introduce our latest podcast series. In this season we will be looking in great detail at the Peninsula War. Yes, that's right, think Richard Sharp and the South Essex. It's a conflict which saw the Duke of Wellington rise to fame and the development of arguably the greatest and most successful British army ever to take the field. Hi guys and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast. Apologies for a break in service recently, but I've been writing up my notes into a book on the Anglo-Zulu War, which I hope to release soon. I'll keep you posted on that. I'll be honest, I wasn't planning on covering the Peninsula War just yet. In fact, I've already written an episode about Sir Ralph Abercrombie and his campaign in Egypt in 1801. But when you get the call in, what can you do? I kept trying to run from the Peninsula. But every time I did, I'd stumble across another classic book that tripped me up and dragged me back to those smoke-wreathed battlefields in Portugal and Spain. And so here we are, facing a long campaign of our own to push through the mountains of books and paintings about the conflict and advance through thick forests, wade ice-cold rivers and march thousands of kilometres together until we reach the end. I'm not going to lie, this is going to be a journey of epic proportions. I think we're looking at at least 10 episodes and probably a year of hard work, but it will be worth it. By the end of this adventure, both you and I will be experts, I'm sure. So without further ado, let's button up our dirty red tunic, straighten our battered shako, and pick up the trusty brown best musket with which we earn our living. It's time to show the crapos what the scum of the earth are capable of. 
By the way, do you like this music? Peninsula War themed heavy metal, what's not to like? Well, I've been kindly given permission to use it on the podcast by the band Forlorn Hope. If you like it and want to hear more of their music, then visit their website, forlornhope.uk. Or just look them up on social media. They're on Instagram and all that other stuff, YouTube. Under a blistering August sun, the Redcoats struggled ashore from rowing boats onto the wide sandy beach of Mondego Bay in Portugal. It was the 1st of August 1808 and the British army had finally arrived. The men had been cooped up on board ship for weeks, their legs unsteady as they landed. They were excited at the prospect of taking on the all-conquering French army, but first they had to contend with the huge breakers and the groundswell of the Atlantic Ocean. John Patterson was a recently commissioned officer in the 50th West Kent Regiment of Foot. He recalls, As soon as the Portuguese boats crowded with our soldiers reached the foaming and rapid surge, a desperate pull was made by all the rowers when, dashing over its surface, we were launched upon the sand in a most unceremonious manner, being pitched, or rather tumbled out, more like a cargo of fish than a boatload of gentlemen warriors. Dazed horses and soldiers were pulled from the surf by burly sailors. Officers shouted orders, struggling to be heard above the crash and thunder of the waves, and men hurriedly dressed and dried themselves. Jonathan Leach, a captain in the elite 95th Rifles, was amongst the first ashore. He was confronted as he landed, not by the enemy as he expected, but by a group his training had not prepared him for. We were beset with a host of padres, friars and monks of all ages, each carrying a huge umbrella of the most gaudy colour imaginable, intended no doubt to protect their complexions, which vied with those of chimney sweeps. These gentry welcomed us with vivas and protested that with our assistance every Frenchman in Portugal should be speedily annihilated. Our visitors were not confined to the male sex, for some olive beauties with sparkling eyes and jet-black hair were induced to take a peep at us, and before we parted some of the more favoured of us were presented with flowers and fruit from the hands of these damsels. I suspect he was one of the guys who got some flowers and fruit, maybe something else. The hot white sand sucked at the soldiers' ankles, exhausting them as they marched off the beach to their bivouacs amongst the rocks. The men, already wearied and weakened from their time aboard ship, found themselves short of drinking water and carrying a heavy load. Four men of the 1st Battalion, 71st Highland Regiment of Foot, died from thirst before they even reached camp. Rifleman Benjamin Harris, a former shepherd and shoemaker from Dorset, recalls the heavy load that he carried. The way I myself toiled under was tremendous. Don't know where that accent comes from, just go with it. And I often wonder at the strength I possessed at this period, which enabled me to endure it, for indeed I am convinced that many of our infantry sank and died under the weight of their knapsacks alone. For my part, being a shoemaker, I marched under a weight sufficient to impede the free motions of a donkey, for besides my well-filled kit there was the greatcoat rolled on its top, my blanket and camp kettle, my haversack stuffed full of leather for repairing men's shoes. I also carried my canteen filled with water my hatchet and rifle, 80 rounds of ball cartridge in my pouch. So let's rewind a little bit and get some of the background. These landings in the peninsula had been a long time coming. This isn't the place for a sort of long-winded introduction to the Napoleonic era and the French Revolution, but just to give you a very brief outline. 
Napoleon Bonaparte was a tough Corsican who had risen rapidly in the French army, had crowned himself Emperor of France in May 1804, and by 1807, after a string of stunning military victories on the continent, he'd bullied Prussia and the Russians into signing the Treaty of Tilsit. The treaty left Britain and Sweden as Napoleon's only enemies, while Portugal, Britain's oldest ally, tried its best to remain neutral. This, though, wasn't sufficient for Napoleon, who became determined to destroy the Portuguese and close all of Europe's ports to British ships. He decided to invade and carve up Portugal, splitting its territory with his Spanish allies. As his troops began to deploy through Spain en route for Portugal, Napoleon saw an opportunity to take advantage of the turmoil within Spain's chaotic ruling family and add Spain to his list of imperial conquests. In a quite extraordinarily cynical move, his troops seized strategic cities, brushing aside the poorly trained and badly equipped Spanish army. Napoleon then placed his older brother Joseph on the throne. I mean, can you imagine? Inevitably, of course, the proud Spaniards reacted. The people rising up enthusiastically in a remarkable and bitterly fought insurrection. Each area of Spain mustered what troops it could and backed them up with swarms of willing peasants who set about harassing the French lines of communication and murdering stragglers or wounded men who fell into their hands. From the northwestern province of Asturias, emissaries were sent to London to beg the British government for help. While this drama was being played out in Spain, a French army under General Junot had marched into Portugal. The British had been determined that the Portuguese fleet should not fall into French hands, and eventually, as the French soldiers approached Lisbon, the royal family departed for their colonies in Brazil, accompanied by the entire navy. Despite missing this prize, the French army quickly took over the country. The tricolour was raised above state buildings, Portuguese soldiers were press-ganged into the French army, and discontent began spreading rapidly among the population. The British government then decided to act. In an uncharacteristically decisive move, they began gathering an expeditionary force. Lieutenant General Sir Arthur Wellesley was in Ireland with 9,500 men at the time, on standby for an operation to South America. But Lord Castlereagh, Secretary of State for War, wrote to him with new orders. It said, The occupation of Spain and Portugal by the troops of France and the entire usurpation of their respective governments by that power has determined His Majesty to direct a corps of troops to be prepared for service to be employed under your orders in counteracting the designs of the enemy and in affording to the Spanish and the Portuguese nations every possible aid in throwing off the yoke of France. At this stage of his career, Sir Arthur Wellesley was a relatively unknown general. He was an aristocratic Irishman and an old Etonian with a slim build, a long face and cold grey eyes that often intimidated those around him. In 1787, at the age of 17, he'd purchased a commission in the 73rd Regiment and in a lightning-quick series of promotions advanced up the ladder, reaching the rank of Lieutenant Colonel after just six years. The highlight of his early career was a minor role in the ill-fated Flanders expedition of 1794, which saw him described by Lord Cornwallis as a sensible man and a good officer. He then deployed to India, where his brother had been appointed Governor-General. Arthur was therefore given every opportunity to shine, this perceived favouritism making him deeply unpopular with many of his colleagues. But gradually he proved himself as a solid tactician with an impressive grasp of logistical needs of a modern army in the field. 
His success is culminated with an impressive victory over a much larger Maratha army at the Battle of Assai in 1803. Despite his victories and the huge amount of money he made from the plunder, he never fell in love with India and was happy to return home in 1804. After a short stint in Parliament, which seems to be what most British generals did at that time, bizarrely, he was lured back to the military to lead an infantry brigade in the war on Denmark in 1807. His success against a Danish militia at the Battle of Koge, I think that's how you pronounce it, saw him soon promoted to Lieutenant General. Despite this impressive run of victories, he was still despised by many of his contemporaries, who still called him the Sepoy General, a term that implied he lacked the skills and experience to fight against a modern European army. But despite his lack of experience against the French, he had impressive confidence both in himself and his men. He was convinced they could take on and defeat Napoleon's seemingly invincible army. Before leaving for Portugal, he told a friend, I'm thinking of the French I'm going to fight. I've not seen them since the campaign in Flanders when they were capital soldiers, and a dozen years of victory under Bonaparte must have made them better still. It is enough to make one thoughtful, but they may overwhelm me. I don't think they will outmaneuver me. First, because I'm not afraid of them, as everyone else seems to be, and secondly, because, if all I hear about their system is true, I think it a false one against steady troops. I suspect all the Continental armies are half-beaten before the battle begins. I, at least, will not be frightened beforehand. Big words. At this time, the British, all conquering at sea, were scorned as a land power. Many of the Redcoats' recent campaigns had ended in failure, and they were considered by their enemies as second-class troops. But it was an army that was growing in size and confidence. Under the guidance of Lord Castlereagh, it had grown to around 200,000 men, and at the Battle of Maida in 1806, it had inflicted a heavy defeat on a French division in Italy. Those in command finally felt they might have the measure of the French. In the near future, I'm hoping to make an entire episode dedicated to exploring the structure, training and tactics of the Army of the Peninsula. But for now, I just want to give you a quick basic overview. Let's start with the lower ranks. Most of those had joined the army tempted by cash bounties or to escape trouble at home. Men like William Lawrence from Dorset, who was one of seven children born to a poor rural family. Having had no education, he was apprenticed to a builder who beat him up. In desperation, he stole some money and after various attempts to enlist, finally found himself accepted into the 40th Regiment of Foot. These types of soldiers, often recruited in the alehouse, had a reputation for heavy drinking and hard fighting, even amongst themselves. Harry Ross Lewis witnessed a full-on pitched battle between men of rival Irish militia regiments quartered in Cork. I'm not going to try an Irish accent, so here we go. Both corps were outside their gates and hotly engaged. In the attempt to put a stop to the affray, one of our officers had a narrow escape from being killed by the bayonet of a northerner. I received a blow of a stone on the hip which broke the hilt of my sword. Several of the men were also hurt. At length, our regiment, being the weaker, fell back to the barracks, and seizing their arms began to fire on their opponents from the upper windows that commanded the road. An attempt to close the barrack gates proved ineffectual owing to the quantity of stones that had already been thrown in and blocked up the way. The northern regiment, imitating ours, rushed into their barracks to arm themselves but in the meantime their officers succeeded in shutting their gates and keeping them in. Our corps seemed to be sorely disappointed, 
when they saw themselves thus debarred of an opportunity of redeeming their credit after the change of weapons, as they maintained that, although less numerous, they were more handier arms than their opponents. Now, admittedly, this probably wasn't your normal scrap between soldiers. There was clearly a religious aspect between those from the north and south of Ireland. But it does illustrate the propensity for violence amongst many of the men. A large proportion of the officers, on the other hand, were aristocrats who had gained promotion through the purchase system. There were promotions due to merit and good service, but these were less common. Officers without money had to rely on filling dead men's shoes to move up the ladder. A few officers had come up from the ranks, but these real-life Richard Sharps often struggled to be accepted, both by their brother officers and also by the rank and file, who preferred to be led by what they thought of as gentlemen. I think reading between the lines in quite a lot of books, actually, it seems these officers who had come up through the ranks were a bit too strict and they knew the system a bit too well, which made the men resent them because they couldn't, they couldn't get away with their tricks. Discipline in the army was stern. Floggings for minor offences were commonplace, 25 strokes being normal. For more serious offences, up to 1,200 strokes could be given, a sentence that was pretty much sure to kill. A soldier who had been caught deserting may find himself facing a firing squad. Rifleman Ben Harris was forced to take part in one such execution and describes the scene. A private of the 70th Regiment had deserted from that corps and afterwards enlisted into several other regiments. He had received the bounty and stolen off. Being caught at last, he was brought to trial at Portsmouth and sentenced by General Court Martial to be shot. When all was ready, we moved to the front, and the culprit was brought out. He made a short speech to the parade, acknowledging the justice of his sentence, and that drinking and evil company had brought the punishment upon him. He behaved himself firmly and well, and did not seem to flinch. After being blindfolded, he was desired to kneel down behind a coffin, which was placed on the ground, Gosh, dark stuff, isn't it? And the drum major of the Hilsey Depot, giving us an expressive glance, we immediately commenced loading. This was done in the deepest silence, and the next moment we were primed and ready. There was then a dreadful pause for a few moments, and the drum major, again looking towards us, gave the signal before agreed upon a flourish of his cane, and we levelled and fired. We had been previously strictly enjoined to be steady and take good aim, and the poor fellow, pierced by several balls, fell heavily upon his back and as he lay with his arms pinioned to his side, I observed that his hands waved for a few moments, like the fins of a fish when in the agonies of death. The drum major also observed the movement, and making another signal, four of our party immediately stepped up to the prostrate body, placing the middle of their pieces to his head, fired, and put him out of his misery. Whew, I can't even imagine what it would be like to, to be on the receiving end or the giving end of that. How awful. The army's tactics were generally conventional, utilising musket-wielding infantrymen fighting in line as they had done since the time of Marlborough. They relied on being able to fire rapidly and accurately, an important skill against the thick columns of infantry that the French preferred for their own assaults. While the British army was still quite conservative, it had been learning from its experience over the years, and its tactics had gradually evolved. Sir David Dundas's drill book of 1788 advocated the Prussian-style three-rank-deep line, but by 1808 this was now virtually ignored in favour of the two-rank line, which was easier to manoeuvre and brought a heavier weight of fire onto the enemy's attacking columns. The army had also embraced the use of light troops. 
Early on in the revolutionary wars against the French, they'd struggled to contain the swarms of French tirailleurs. I think that's how you say it. Apologies if I'm wrong. Tirailleurs, or skirmishers, that the French sent ahead of their columns to disrupt the enemy line and pick it apart before the main attack struck. To counter this threat, the British beefed up their own existing light troops by creating the 5th Battalion of the 60th Regiment, or Royal Americans. Dressed in green and armed with the new Baker rifle, which in the right hands could be accurate at up to 500 yards. Shortly afterwards, Colonel Coote Manningham set up the Experimental Rifle Corps, which then became the 95th Rifles. The men in these units were trained as marksmen, taught advanced fieldcraft and were encouraged to show initiative. In battle, their role was to harass the enemy and neutralise the enemy's tirailleurs. The French army that the British were to face was a huge conscript one, incorporating troops from all of France's empire, including Poland, Italy and the German states. It had steamrolled its way across Europe, crushing the Russians and the Austrians at the Battle of Austerlitz in 1805 and proving virtually unbeatable. It was an army brimming with confidence and self-belief. The men were bold and enterprising, promotions from the ranks were commonplace, and the men well respected by their officers and by the general public. Most of their generals were excellent soldiers with years of campaigning behind them. To take them on and beat them would be a monumental challenge, especially for British soldiers lacking combat experience and in poor physical condition after a long time at sea. So back to the story, and on the 13th of July 1808, the packed transports of Wellesley's force set off. The men were in high spirits, always happy to be having a crack at the French. Good lads. They'd barely left British waters when the government decided to expand the size of the expedition. General Spencer was to be sent from the Mediterranean, while infantry brigades under Brigadiers Ackland and Anstruther were to set sail from England. Sir John Moore, a character we're going to meet a lot more in later episodes, and his force of 11,000 troops were also to head to the peninsula from the Baltic, where they'd been anchored off Gothenburg attempting to help Sweden in their fight with Russia. Technically Moore, a skilled and dashing officer, was senior to Wellesley, and was considered a safe pair of hands militarily. But he wasn't popular with the politicians who thought him tactless. In other words, he said what he thought. Lord Castlereagh and the government wanted to keep Wellesley as commander-in-chief of this new bigger force, but the King and the Duke of York, who was head of the army, were not happy with that. Wellesley was not yet 40 and sat lower than Moore on the army list. To them, he was still just a young upstart who hadn't proven himself against a worthwhile enemy. Moore, on the other hand, was a veteran who had fought the French on numerous occasions, including in the Caribbean and in Egypt but the ministers were determined that Moore would not get command. Therefore, in a sort of bizarre, complicated scheme, they parachuted in Sir Hugh Dalrymple to become the commander, with Sir Harry Burrard as his second. Dalrymple and Burrard were both guardsmen and high up on the army list, but they lacked the energy and experience needed to lead a large force in the field. In one bizarre political stroke, Wellesley found himself fall from commander of the expedition to fourth in command. Despite this massive setback, though, he had one big advantage over the others. He and his men had already left Britain. Barard, Moore and Dalrymple were days behind, leaving Wellesley a free hand to make his name before they arrived. It was an opportunity he was ready to take. 
Wellesley's force that landed at Mondego Bay numbered 15,000 men and took eight days to disembark. Once ashore, they were organised into six infantry brigades. There was the 1st Brigade under Major General Rowland Hill, the 2nd Brigade under Major General Ronald Crawford Ferguson, the 3rd Brigade under General Nightingale. They all had funny names, didn't they? The 4th Brigade under Major General Bernard Ford Bowes. I think that's how you say it, Bowes or Bowes. The 5th Brigade under General Catelyn Crawford. And then the 6th or Light Brigade, which was Major General Henry Fane. That included the 2nd Battalion 95th Rifles and the 5th Battalion of the 60th Royal American. The expeditionary force also included 380 cavalrymen of the 20th Light Dragoons, a regiment that had not long returned from the Buenos Aires expedition where it had fought dismounted. Wellesley also had a small number of 9 and 6 pounder artillery pieces, but unfortunately lack of space on the troop ships meant that very few horses had arrived and both the cavalry and the artillery struggled to find sufficient mounts. Also in the vicinity of Mondego Bay were five or six thousand Portuguese troops commanded by a general called Freire. F-R-E-I-R-A. Freire, I think. He wouldn't allow all of his troops to combine forces with the British unless Wellesley could agree to supply them with food and ammunition. But he wasn't in a, in a place to make such a promise and a sullen Freire eventually agreed to loan the British just 1,400 infantry and 260 cavalry. Wellesley was livid. Who did this guy think he was? He was here to help liberate the guy's country. He told the Secretary of State for War, Lord Castlereagh, that the Portuguese were scared of the French and incapable of feeding themselves. Passing through large pine woods, vineyards and olives groves, dotted with whitewashed houses, dazzling in the summer sun, the cavalry, accompanied by Major General Fane's 6th Brigade, began to reconnoitre south on the 9th of August. The following day, the entire British force broke up camp and followed them towards Lisbon, an inevitable battle. The army stayed close to the coast, keeping the supplies and transports nearby. Arriving in the town of Leiria, Captain Leach and his colleagues discovered gory evidence of French atrocities against the local population. This is what he said. The town bore the mark of recent depredation, plunder and excesses of all kinds. The walls of the convent in which I went with some of our officers were covered with blood and brains, damning proof of the scenes that had recently been acted there. As the British advanced from their bridgehead, the French began to organise themselves to meet them. A force under Henri-Francois Delabore, Junot's best general, was dispatched northwards, and on the 15th of August, the two sides briefly clashed for the first time. Four companies of green-jacketed riflemen of the 60th and 95th regiments moved forward in small groups to occupy the village of Obidos. Suddenly, they came under a blistering hail of fire. Muzzles flamed, sergeants bellowed orders, and thick, foul-smelling smoke quickly obscured visibility. In the confusion, the 95th suffered the first British combat fatality of the campaign. Rifleman Harris was there. The first man that was hit was Lieutenant Banbury. He fell pierced through the head with a musket ball and died almost immediately. I thought I never heard such a tremendous noise as the firing made on this occasion, and the men on both sides of me, I could occasionally observe, were falling fast. B. 
being overmatched, we retired to a rising ground or hillock in our rear and formed there all around its summit, standing three deep, the front rank kneeling. In this position we remained all night, expecting the whole host upon us at any moment. It was a minor skirmish, but the rifleman, high on adrenaline and excited by the prospect of an easy victory, had advanced too far and found themselves surrounded. With some difficulty, Major General Spencer pushed forward with a brigade and eventually managed to rescue them. British casualties were 29 men killed, wounded or missing. But the first proper battle wasn't long in coming. On the morning of the 17th of August, the British Army prepared for battle. The men ate their bread and eagerly sipped wine from canteens trying to relax as they wondered what it would be like to face the French veterans. For many it would be their first time under fire. Wellesley had numbers on his side, nearly 15,000 infantry, 470 cavalry and 18 guns against 4,000 infantry, 250 light cavalry and 5 guns. But the French had chosen excellent defensive positions using the steep slopes and narrow defiles of the Portuguese countryside to make any attack against them a difficult and dangerous one. The British were divided into three distinct columns. On the left were the 2nd and 4th Brigades, totalling around 4,900 men and commanded by General Ferguson. On the right flank was Colonel Trant and his small force of Portuguese cavalry and infantry, which was tasked with turning the French flank and entering the mountains to Delaborde's rear. In the centre, Wellesley himself commanded 9,000 men, which he marched across the plain in a slow, imposing show of force. It was a movement of parade ground precision, executed perfectly by his redcoats, and was all part of Wellesley's plan to draw Delaborde's eye from his flanks, where it was hoped Ferguson and Trant would launch a pincer movement to envelop Delaborde. As usual, the skirmishers from the rifle regiments were first into action, moving forward in pairs and looking for targets. Benjamin Harris was at the front and was impressed as he watched the French prepare. I remember observing the pleasing effect afforded by the sun's rays glancing upon their arms as they formed in order of battle to receive us. Moving on in extended order under whatever cover that nature afforded, we began a sharp fire upon them, and thus began the Battle of Ralisa. Quick note there, so the battle is spelled R-O-L-I-C-A, but I'm told it's pronounced Ralisa. Hope I'm right. There'll be a lot of that in this season where I get pronunciations wrong, so don't be mad. The deep bass boom of the British artillery now commenced as Ferguson's column began its assault on the French right flank. Harry Ross Lewin, a young Irish officer who we met earlier, was with the 32nd Regiment. He says, We advanced in three columns. As we approached the enemy, the utmost order was preserved, and the columns were increased and diminished with as much regularity as if we were at review. When, within musket shot of the enemy, the line was formed and we advanced over the uneven ground, doubling when an obstacle presented itself and moving up when we had passed it with great exactness. The enemy appeared at the foot of the position outside of the wood, but retired under cover as we advanced. This we had reason to expect from old soldiers who knew how to take advantage of their ground. The columns pushed on, surmounting every obstacle, and drove the enemy before them. At the same time, trans-Portuguese in their white jackets and feathered hats appeared at the small village of Quinta Gruga, threatening the French left. These excellently timed manoeuvres were wasted, though, 
as under the cover of his skirmishers and screened by cavalry, Delaborde, who was no novice, skilfully avoided the pincer movement, withdrawing to new positions on a very steep hill two miles further south, by the village of Columbera. The British followed them, struggling to keep order as they advanced through confined passes and across slopes, strewn with slippery rocks and thick scrub. The sun was high, and the pursuing British were soon sweating heavily and struggling for breath. Captain Leach of the 95th found it tough going. Never before, nor since, do I remember to have felt more intense and suffocating heat than we experienced in climbing the mountains to the attack. Every mouthful of air was such as inhaled when looking into an oven. As the two sides took up new positions, the firing continued thick and fast, musket balls zipping menacingly in all directions. Here's Captain Leach again. In the act of collecting our men to renew the attack on the second position, one of my brother officers, whilst holding his canteen to my mouth to give me some wine, well mulled by the sun, received a musket shot through his hand, and through the canteen which it split and gave me a sharp blow, which cut my mouth and spun me around like a top. For a few moments I concluded that I was wounded, but the mystery was soon explained by seeing my friend on the ground bleeding, prof bleeding profusely and the broken canteen by his side. Leach had had a lucky escape, as did his fellow officer Cochrane, who despite his injury was soon back in action. Bright sunlight glinting off canteens was clearly a beacon for French sharpshooters, as Harris also remembered. Joseph Cochin was by my side, loading and firing very industriously. Thirsting with heat and action, he lifted his canteen to his mouth. Here's to you, old boy, he said as he took a pull at its contents. As he did so, a bullet went through the canteen, and perforating his brain, killed him in a moment. Meanwhile, Wellesley had now reformed his troops and was waiting for Trent and Ferguson's men to work their way around the French flanks. But Napoleonic battlefields were confusing, incredibly noisy and wreathed in fixed smoke that made observation very difficult. Communication could be haphazard, and in a tragic error, Colonel George Lake, son of a famous general who'd seen a lot of success in India, mistakenly led the 1st Battalion of the 29th Worcestershire Regiment into an unsupported frontal assault up a steep, narrow ravine. Captain Patterson of the 1st Battalion 50th takes up the story. The 29th, commanded by the gallant Colonel Lake, pressed onward to the gorge of the pass. While they were struggling up the rugged and precipitous ascent, they were exposed to a shower of balls, and in a few minutes the Grenadier Company was nearly annihilated, the chivalrous Lake falling mortally wounded at their head. Lake was shot under the arm, the ball passing through him and knocking him from his horse as he tried to organise a bayonet charge. One of his men, Sergeant Major Richards, seeing him fall, rushed forward to defend his body, but he too was soon riddled with thirteen bullets and died from his wounds. Allegedly, his last words were, I should have died happy if our gallant colonel had been spared. Lake must have had a premonition of his death that day. Colonel Landman of the Royal Engineers saw him before the attack and noted his new uniform with shiny leather boots, hat and epaulets. His hair was powdered and his hat was worn in the strictest accordance of King's regulations. Landman said afterwards, I could not refrain from observing to Lake. Well, Colonel, you're dressed as if you're going to be received by the King. Lake smiled and replied with a dignified air, Egad, sir, if I am killed today, I mean to die like a gentleman. 
In an attempt to save Lake and his men, Wellesley ordered a general attack. Up steep slopes and through thick bush, the Redcoats attacked and were met with murderous French fire. Amongst those at the forefront was a very young Lieutenant George Wood of the 1st 82nd, going into battle for the first time. Having previously fixed bayonets primed and loaded, we drew nearer and nearer to the scene of the action. It was now that I could have dispensed with the honours of a military life, and had it been as honourable to have gone to the rear as to the front, I should certainly have preferred the former, and that in double quick time. For me, I must confess, it caused a little imperceptible tremor. We now began to advance over those who had fallen. Among them was my brother officer who had been out skirmishing and we came under what I thought was then pretty hot fire, both of field pieces and musketry, not having witnessed the like before. I was soon knocked down by a musket ball striking me on the left groin, and I only escaped a severe wound due to having some papers in the pocket of my pantaloons, which prevented it penetrating the flesh. Eventually, supported by Colonel Robe's artillery, the British battled their way onto the crest of the hill, forcing the French back. Ferguson was soon pressing the French right flank and General Delaborde was forced to withdraw. Protected by their cavalry screen, the French fell back in good order, though three guns were abandoned and a number of prisoners taken. Just after four o'clock, the firing stopped. Though a relatively small affair compared to later battles in the peninsula, the Battle of Relisa had been a tough day of fighting in a demanding environment. The French lost around 600 men killed, wounded or captured, while the British Army had suffered 487 casualties, including two Lieutenant Colonels killed, as well as Lake, the other was Lieutenant Colonel John Stewart of the 1st Battalion 9th Regiment of Foot. A heavy toll really given the relatively small number of troops who were actually engaged. But numbers don't tell the story of the dead. After battle the survivors must come to terms with their loss. Many soldiers had gone on campaign with their wives, we'll talk about that in a later episode, and on returning to his lines, Benjamin Harris had to break the bad news to the wife of his old friend Joseph Cochin, shot in the head while taking a drink. At her request, he took her to find her husband's body. She embraced a stiffened corpse, and after rising and contemplating his disfigured face for some minutes, with hands clasped and tears streaming down her cheeks, she took a prayer book from her pocket and kneeling down repeated the service for the dead over the body. When she had finished she appeared a good deal comforted. Relisa was the first British battle of the Peninsula War. It hadn't been a decisive victory, but the British and their commanding officer had given a solid if unspectacular account of themselves. Although they were by far the larger force, the actual number of troops who, who engaged in the fighting was fairly similar. To a Britain that had grown used to defeat and the failure of their army, the battle had shown that the French weren't invincible and could be matched on the battlefield. Wars are won and lost by such psychological factors. Despite his bluster, Wellesley must have been apprehensive before the battle given his lack of experience against European troops, and this perhaps explains his lengthy manoeuvres against the French flanks that allowed Delaborde time to withdraw to new positions. Given his advantage in numbers, a quick and overwhelming frontal assault against the French centre may have yielded more decisive results. Wellesley always maintained that the battle was very important. He certainly seemed to learn a lot from it, witnessing the French skill in their defensive positioning and concealment, traits he was to master himself over the coming years. 
What Wellesley also showed at Rolisa, though, was his ability to plan and organise his battles successfully, while dealing with surprises like Lake's premature attack against the French centre. In his after-action report to Secretary of State Castlereagh, describing the battle, Wellesley was full of praise for his men. He said, I cannot sufficiently applaud the conduct of the troops throughout this action. The enemy's positions were formidable, and he took them up with his usual celerity and defended them most gallantly. The troops actually engaged in the heat of the action were, from unavoidable circumstances, only the 5th, 9th, 29th, the riflemen of the 95th and 60th, and the flank companies of Major General Hill's brigade, being a number by no means equal to the enemy. Their conduct deserves the highest commendation. There was no time for resting on laurels, though. Intelligence soon arrived that strong French reinforcements under General Loison were rapidly approaching, and battle would soon be upon them again. Well, that's all for today, guys. I think you'll agree that it's been an adrenaline-filled introduction to the peninsula, and we've met a number of characters who will crop up time and again over the course of this season. I hope you're as excited as I am. Please do keep in touch on social media. I have accounts on Instagram and Twitter where I'm at Redcoat History. You can also watch my recordings of the podcasts and see my battlefield tours on YouTube. Just search for Redcoat History, you'll find me. Also, I will be releasing my book about the Anglo-Zulu War in the coming weeks, so be sure to check in with me to find out how to get your hands on a copy. In the next episode, Wellesley and his troops have a much sterner test at the Battle of Vimeiro. Can they push the French out of Portugal, or will they be driven back into the sea? Join me next month to find out. Until then, I plan on drinking myself into oblivion on cheap grog plundered off the bodies of my enemies, just like any good Napoleonic-era British soldier should. <laughs>